0: Welcome again to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter. I'm here with fellow Booktopian and book hoarder, Shanu. And today we are very happy to be in the podcast room with Bev Brock, who's About. brought um, uh, Brock at Bathurst. <laughs> Peter Brock's unrivaled racing career at Mount Panorama. Welcome, Bev.
1: Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here.
0: It's, um, it's a real honour. Um, you were married to, not married, you were you were <laughs> partner, in part, but you took his name.
1: I did. Well, now, there was a reason for yeah, that. Yeah, let's get straight to that. <laughs> let's go back, if, if you can, uh, 43 years ago, it really wasn't done for people to live together. Mm. However, Peter and I had both been married, and we had both been brought up to believe that you make marriage work, and we had both found that no matter how hard you worked, sometimes it just doesn't work. So when we got together, we, all, we understood mutually that a relationship was not about a legal piece of paper or about a blessing from a church. It was about a personal commitment you made to each other. And so we were both very firmly committed to that personal relationship and not to the legality or the uh, religious, you know, significance of it. So um, the commitment was made and that was fine until, uh, you know, I had a six-month-old child already and Peter was an instant father, amazing. But uh, when we had our first child, it seemed... Stupid to have two different names, and we were running a business, so and that made it complex with banks and legal things. So, I just said, look, you know, how about if I just change my name to yours? And he was very happy with that, and that's what we did. So, you made it work. Yeah, it worked, and we were a bit ahead of our time in in doing things like that. So,
0: tell us a bit about this book. It's now it's fifty years since Peter's first race at Bathurst at Mm -hmm. the mountain, Um, and now we've got this big, beautiful, um, colourful photo book. Um, with your words and interviews with his teammates and colleagues, um, that takes you right through his career, but specifically all about Bathurst.
1: It is specifically because essentially um, Peter is known for many things, but King Bathurst is is the pinnacle of it. Hmm. You know, King of the Mountain. This is this is the man who's beaten the mountain more times than anybody else. And if you take his nine victories, that's one thing. But then on top of that, you look at the fact that he won the twenty four hour race, which is the equivalent of three three Bathurst races, plus. All his podium finishes, you know, his record at the mountain was absolutely amazing. So with the 50th anniversary coming up, I must have just been a child when it started. <laughs> but um, the publishers came to me uh, and said, look, you know, obviously the, we're going to mark the 50th anniversary and we'd like you to chronicle them. And I thought, well, now that's a bit of a challenge because when you go to Mount Panorama for a race, it's hard work and you don't have, you don't take a a diary, and you don't take cameras because there's all these people out there doing it, and you're just flat out from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. So I thought, how the hell am I going to recall all the trips to Bathurst? Because it wasn't just once a year; there were the Easter races, the 12-hour races, and the 24-hour races. So there were many, many, many trips to Bathurst. And I thought, you know, significant races, yes, they jump out, but there's a lot that don't. So I thought, now, how do I trigger my memory? Ah. And everybody needs to know that you can't achieve a result like this on your own. You have to have uh, an amazing amount of support and a team behind you or else you're never going to get there. So it was important for me that people saw the backstory and that only came from hearing the personal stories of, you know, as you say, people like our team manager, our our crew, our PR people, our co-drivers, all of those individuals who made it possible for peter to get out behind the wheel of the car at, at the bassist race and give it a hundred percent focus so he didn't have to worry about any of the trivia he could he could sign for the fans he could deal with the media he could swan around and then it came time to get in the car and everybody had taken care of everything else so we made an agreement that over the years he would never have to worry about the trivia you know, all any niggling doubts and everything would be taken care of. His crew were amazing, so when he got behind the wheel of a car, he knew it was fantastic, and he could give it a hundred percent focus. So I thought, okay, kept in touch with so many of the people who've been part of that team over those years, 50 years. Most of them, the first couple, I wasn't there for, but from um, very early on, you know, I was there as a friend until we got together in at the end of '76. So I just got in touch with those people because I said their stories had never been told. So many of them, you know, were there and part of those incredible victories but their stories have never been told. Were, so there,
2: were there stories um, that people provided to you that you hadn't heard before? Were there things new to you? Um, or?
1: Not, not the actual – the interesting thing was not the co-drivers and mm-hmm. not the crew members because I was a functional part, part of, of, the, of team. the team. So that wasn't new. The surprise for me and it didn't come from my two youngest kids because they were just little kids and they used to get bored, (laughs) stupid and (laughs) dorky dad Um, but from James, my eldest son and who drove at Bathurst, he did a number of rallies with Peter but he also drove twice at Bathurst um, and with victories on both occasions and I, I had never ever considered how that Uh, impact of those races had on my son until he's written his story holy dolly I had (laughs) never considered it that way so that one was a real eye-opener for me the rest of it sort of uh, fleshed out essentially things I'd known there were a few things that you know I hadn't been really clear of how the impact they had on others but essentially uh, that was all reaffirming it was my my son's (laughs) story that (laughs)
2: flummoxed me I thought it was really interesting as well at the beginning of the book how you have a little bit of the history of um, both um, you know Mount Panorama itself mm. um, back from the times when it was uh, you know the Aboriginal um, people of the of the area used it as the sort of a lookout yes. um, back to then you know in the 1930s it was you know both both expensive yes. <laughs> but also necessary yes. to do something to try and get the economy uh, the economy started there. Um, and well, to had, me, that
1: was fascinating. Yeah. I don't think. There would be very, very few people going to Bathurst these days who would know anything about that. No, absolutely. And that, I certainly didn't yeah. know anything about and that. And I so. found all that really fascinating. So it was important to me to put in that, you know, Bathurst had a history before it became a motor race circuit. And then, you know, coming through the Depression to see, you know, the fact that it was built by guys who simply needed work, um, all of those things I found really fascinating.
2: Yeah. And in the same way that the you sort of like learn about the history of Bathurst, it's also very interesting to learn about Peter's backstory yes. um, and what sort of um, drove him, uh, drove him, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> terrible pun. Motivated uh, him. <laughs> motivated him, thank you, yeah. um, to sort of, uh, to do this. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about sort of what were the what were the driving, driving, oh, I did it again, forces behind? <laughs> <laughs> Look, as a little kid, um,
1: <laughs> Peter's great uncle, Henry, was uh, one of the founders of motor racing in Australia. And so that there was this family connection. Peter's dad would have loved to have been that. But because of that connection, from when, uh, because Peter was one of, you know, he's got uh, three brothers, so one of the four boys, and his dad's interest through the great-uncle Henry um, used to take him along to hill climbs and, and you know, the, the early Grand Prix races and so forth. So as a little kid, he saw these cars, but, and he couldn't wait to get behind the wheel. So the family farm provided him with the opportunity to drive anything with wheels so you know this is a tiny little kid he would drive the the Ferguson tractor with a massive Ferguson with a pillow behind him so he could reach the pedals and then he got to the point where he got a paddock bomb and and he was keen on shaping it himself and bought this Austin and old Austin and used his mum's axe to cut the body panels off. no there was no craftsmanship in this. this was a raw <laughs> a, a false, raw yeah. paddock bomb uh, and and the thing had no brakes. so his skill came from driving this very raw material around a paddock without brakes. Wow. and so he had to learn the craft of of steering and and drifting and all of those things through gateways and and everything so his skill came from a passion for being behind the wheel at warp speed and having to overcome mechanical difficulties or non-existent mechanical things that should have been there so um he couldn't wait to take it to the next level but they had no money so uh, he was then uh, <laughs> conscripted in the first army's conscription
2: i also did not know that so and, that was really interesting yeah too. <laughs> so
1: and because he was a person who was Uh, No no guns, no violence, and he refused to take part in that side of it. But he was also incredibly intelligent. And so he passed the test and got to um, take over in in terms of the medical base. So he was a medic, a trained medic in in the National Service. Now, that only vehicle that gave him to drive was the the, uh, company's ambulance. (laughs) So he and a couple of his friends... Um, used the ambulance in ways that I don't think the army ever envisaged Um, and it was, you know, they set they had lap records and speed. (laughs) Poor buggers, whoever was patient in the ambulance got the full experience of it. So uh, at that time his real passion for motor racing came to the fore. He purchased um, the (laughs) incredible Austin and and got a, a Red Holden motor and so off base times he and his mates would build this car. Which was an absolute beast. Um, you know, they built it in the truck shed of his mum and dad's home when he was home on leave. Um, he um, he was he taught himself to weld on it. So if he turned the amperage up, it cut, and if he turned it down, it filled the holes. Yep. Uh, so there was a very raw talent, but lots of enthusiasm. And by this stage, he was able to sneak. If once his mum and dad had gone to bed, he could he could pinch mum's new Holden and go and do laps. And one night. The constabulary found this car doing warp speed on the, the local roads and uh, he beat them home to his place. And so he <laughs> parked the car and raced and flung himself into bed full <laughs> in of so that um, when the police pulled up, the car was still hot but mum and dad's no, the boys haven't been, you know, I don't know out. what's going on. And she's looked in and there's Peter sound asleep but he was... Uh, Fully dressed under the blanket, so <laughs> he was pretty out there as a young man, yep. with it, it determined to get into motor racing. The car was a, a unwieldy-looking vehicle, but it <laughs> he would go out there and beat guys in far better cars. And it wasn't until the local Holden dealer at Watson Holden had a, a car that had been uh, tricked up a bit, and they wanted to sell it, but in order to sell it, they really needed to get a bit of uh, promotion. So. They suggested that Peter maybe drive this car at some of the local meets like Hume Weir and so forth, uh, which don't exist today as a racetrack. So when he took that car out and the viewing public could see and the 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 motoring journalists could see that when he drove a car that people related to and he could beat the opposition in that, then they knew he was capable beyond it. And that led to Harry Firth hearing about this. He knew he was a raw talent, but when they realised that he could drive any car... Uh, then came the offer for Harry to put him into the original HDT team, which was for the 69 Bathurst, and uh, that phone call changed, changed Peter's life, life yeah. forever. Wow. So he he just thought it was so his mates messing around, but <laughs> fortunately it wasn't, and thankfully he realised. Tell
0: me about Bathurst in terms of a, as a in terms of a track. Yeah. Um, why Bathurst as opposed to Eastern Creek or Phillip Island or any of the tracks? Why has this mountain become so synonymous with endurance racing and with racing culture as a whole in Australia?
1: The the interesting thing for Bathurst is that it is... uh, in, In the world, there are very, very few circuits that go from low altitude to high altitude... Uh, with so many turns and twists where they can't see round the corner, and the mm. decline coming down the mountain is equally as is treacherous. And if you've ever driven around it in ordinary speeds in a car, and you realise yes. you can't see around the corners, you it's wonder how the scary. hell they do it yes. <laughs> in a race car. So it always held that fascination because the previous race had been held at Phillip Island, which is a fantastic track, but it's flat. Yeah. And you can see the ocean and you've got some interesting turns. But when it was transferred from the Armstrong 500 to Bathurst, um, the challenge was there for all these red-blooded, testosterone-driven blokes who... And the women didn't do it back then. and the Very few do it now. But they it was such a challenge. And at that stage, there was no, no safety. There was a bit of barbed wire in some spots, but a bit of barbed wire wasn't <laughs> going to stop a car. And a few of the cars went over the edge. Um, and so the challenge was enormous. Now... That was okay for the Australians and once the race became televised and that footage was televised overseas, the European drivers were just fascinated Mm. and so often teams in Australia would get European, top level European drivers to come out and drive because what it did was give them media exposure they wouldn't get otherwise. Of course, yeah. But what they found was that the European drivers came out and on the first lap were taken aback and... And it wasn't just the Australian drivers who said this is the best track in the world. It was the European drivers who saw this as an unbelievable challenge. The only track other than uh, Bathurst in the world that comes close is at Spa. Uh, Le Mans is, is flat, mm-hmm. more or less flat, and got some hairy corners. But Spa takes you through the forest and it can be pouring with rain on one, fog on another section. So even though it has nowhere near the altitude decline that, That Bathurst has, Spa still has a challenge, whereas Bathurst is constantly, you know, and for endurance races to have a car last for the eight hours or so that the race goes on, uh, the car has to be really strong. So there's many challenges there. And all the drivers that drive there, and, and from the, the, uh, the stories that your personal stories you've got from the European drivers that are included in the book, they say that you know, they understand completely why it is seen as the challenge. Peter always used to say, it's the best racetrack in the universe because it had to go beyond Earth. So yeah. <laughs> it, it is in many, many ways um, this unbelievable challenge for a, a guy behind the wheel.
0: What was the sport like when Peter began? And how have, had it changed just in that golden era?
1: Well, back then it was pretty preliminary. It was, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, if you read in the book, you know, when it first started, you didn't have to have a driving suit. There was no fireproof clothing. And, in fact, the Gagan brothers, their uh, sponsor was a men's outfitter and gave them <laughs> three-piece suits <laughs> and they drove the race in their <laughs> three-piece suits. Um, there were no racing boots as such. There were some people who wore, like, tennis shoes. Others yep. drove barefooted. Oh, uh, there works. were no helmets, <gasps> race helmets. There was no fire-proof clothing. So in terms of the actual driver safety, the cars were, you know, there were no roll bars. There were no real no, safety No, they were sort of set
2: up as normal cars with, yeah, with extra...
1: Exactly. But, you know, in the that's, engines. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was it. And so that's how it started. Now, Peter was the last... In those early days, you could drive the race as a solo drive and that meant eight hours driving. And Peter was I, the last driver to drive it and, and he won it as a I've solo read that. drive. I could not believe so that. So after that, well, Harry Firth, the team manager, wouldn't let him have a drink for that eight hours <gasps> because if he had a drink, he might need to go to the toilet. Right. So mm-hmm. he wasn't allowed to have a drink. So, you know, you can get horribly he must dehydrated. Been so dehydrated. Yeah. 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 So it, it, you know, it, it came time, the engineers... You know, There were a few serious accidents and the engineers re- realised that you had to put some uh, some fencing that was going to stop people from going over the edge. Uh, they had to sort of cut away a bit on some of the corners, the line marking, uh, and then they realised they perhaps need pace cars that would slow people down if there was an accident. Um, so the race never stopped but, and then they put in the chase because the straight coming down from the mountain down to the corner at Pitt Strait was long and fast and, and so the cars were you know doing 300k yeah and so they needed to slow that down so they put the chase in and when they first put the bridge in uh, over the track one of the guys collected that and killed himself so that's when the chase came in to slow them down before they got to the bridge so the pits at the time were <laughs> just you know that they, they they had a wire fence and They'd mark with a bit of uh, chalk on the road as to where the cars would park. There was no pit <laughs> facilities. Oh. Um, then they put in a corrugated fence, and so um, the guys working in the crew used to have to leap across the fence with the with uh, their trolley jacks and and so forth. And the fuel fuel turns well, they had, they <laughs> didn't have fuel turns. It had a five gallon drum, and it had a filter, you know, oh. a, a, a you know, a funnel funnel yeah. on the top. Um, and you had to use the car's own jack and you had to use the car's spare tyre. It no. was the first wheel that had to go on the car. So all of these things, and, and you know, even back when we first started going there, it was very agricultural. Um, you'd all park in the car park at the back with the caravans. Yep. So you had these family units. The only brick building that was there was a shower and toilet block that's everybody used. There was one shower. Mm. <laughs> and so the, the queue up sounds wonderful it was it was but it was the best atmosphere and everybody there was a camaraderie and everybody pitched in the noise through the night while they're working on their cars and revving you didn't get much sleep but if somebody was short on tires and wheels you helped them out and it, so it was a a very different atmosphere yeah. to the very professional uh you know isolating atmosphere that, i mean don't get me wrong the racing there is amazing the equipment is incredible we built the first permanent garage there, which was just, a, you know, um, a built uh, tin a garage shed, shed that yep. we put there. And that was seen as groundbreaking. Space age. So <laughs> it Very <was> there. fancy. <laughs> um, and since then, of course, it's all, you know, the, the pit facilities, the, the, garage, the permanent garages, the transporters are beyond belief. Yeah. It's and, and it's huge money. It, it's just become so incredibly expensive. And I, to be completely honest, think we had the best time of it. It was just uh, – it was basic, but it, it sounds was sounds like fun. a lot of fun. Yeah. And hard work. It was really hard work, constant. But anyhow, yeah. like we got the best years of it.
0: Has the sport today become too corporate, too dry?
1: Um, corporate is really interesting. I mean, the sport is so expensive, you have to have the corporate backing or else you couldn't mm. afford to be there. Um, and, and the corporate facilities are amazing. Um and as Peter always said, you know, look, he was blessed. You know, you know, his, his sponsors were there for youngs, you know, like Bridgestone and Holden and then Mobil. Um, you know, they were virtually lifetime sponsors. And, you know, look at Dick with Shell, and that's been, you know, the longest continual sponsorship in engaging with a person. So the, the corporate sponsorship has made all of this transition into really professional racing possible. Uh, the trouble is it's now become hyper expensive for the public to get in. Yeah, um, right. So the crowds are down. And so instead of uh, dropping the prices, making it family friendly, the prices go up, less people come, you know, the, the television coverage is not, you know, it's now on, you know... Um, like a secondary. Yeah, it's no yeah, longer it's free to air. air. It's not the prime um, thing that you see, yeah. It's not prime. So a lot of
2: things have changed. Are they all fantastic? In some ways, yes, but there's always a downside, so... Yeah, it'd be interesting to sort of see how um, they may change that in the sort of in, – in the future where they – I don't see it. I, no. th- I think what I see the trend is
1: towards being more like Formula One racing, which is is a bit it's isolating. Very, it's a very it, different experience. Yes, and it, absolutely. and it cuts the people away from that – you know, because before there was all face-to-face and and the the fans had their – They were right. – favourite drivers. Yep. Now the sport wants to promote the formula rather than the individual drivers. The individual they don't driver. want to see any one driver being promoted above another. And
2: whilst on one level you understand that, the fans want you want that people. personal they connection, want, and absolutely. that's and that's got to be one yep. of the um, you know one of the reasons why Peter was such. I mean, as, besides being just a legend in the being such an amazing driver, yep. but he's because he was a people person. He's a people and person. That's yeah. the
1: thing. He you know the thing he always said to the guys. Hey guys you need to be more than a driver you've got you know when you look at the, the requirements you ha- yes they have to have skill behind the wheel without doubt but they also have to understand and have a relationship with the media they have to have enough now to understand the engineering and to know what needs to happen to set the cars up nowadays computers take over a lot of that but the drivers had to be able to develop their cars they had to have a relationship with the public nowadays so many of the drivers are removed from the public they don't they sort of see it as an interference. You know, no, if you don't have the support of the public, the sponsors aren't interested in you and therefore yep. you don't get sponsorship dollars. So it's, they've got to be intelligent. They've got to be capable. They've got to be personable. They've got to have a package. They've got to be physically fit. They've got to have a package that's not required in so many other sports. You know, there, is, there are many, many layers to it. So I have total and absolute respect for those guys who get out there and are able to do it. There's a lot of very good drivers who may not have the other levels and therefore are not as popular. Yep. And Peter used to say to them, guys, you've got to make yourself available to your public. You've got to be there for the media. You've got to do those things, because if you don't, it's not going to work. So Craig was the one who listened to him most. And that's the one that yeah, i that one one motor to. racing expert, but I was like Craig I do sort of, know that yeah, person. Craig <laughs> Craig name. <Rounds, laughs> and that's it. And yep. so now that Craig's stepped out of full-time driving and will only drive in the endurance races, mm-hmm. The other personalities, you know, there are some standouts, but they're not allowed to be developed as the face of the the sport. Yeah, as as, it used to be. And that's a shame.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. well, speaking of um, uh, Peter and, and his, you know, connection with the fans, you were telling us as you were um, signing some copies for us um, about uh, some of the interesting things he's had to sign, <laughs> and I just, I, I just feel like everyone should know about that because <laughs> I thought that was very impressive. Well,
1: I mean, everyone's used to the books and, and standard bits and the clothing, the, you know, that all goes without saying. The, the caps, but uh, there were sometimes people stretch now. Getting them to sign their bodies was fine, except I used to say to him. When you're signing a body, I don't care what you think, you do it neat and small because they're going to come back tomorrow with it tattooed. So for all the women, he was very good at signing neat and small with a little love heart and that could be on the boobs, it could be on the, their backsides, it could be on the, And I used to think, you know, on their, their abdomens and, and I just uh, bikini lines and I used to think, how on earth do they manage with their partners who are in the throes of passion to look down and see Peter's signature (laughs) flashing at them. But that's what they wanted and I think, oh, God. But then uh, one day we were there and uh, this the strangest one ever and this guy wanted an autograph and he said, Peter, this will shock you and Peter was beyond shocked by this stage until the guy popped out his false eye (laughs) and wanted him to sign the back of his false eye. And, And, oh, I... True in breath, you know, I mean, Peter's got too you sure? <laughs> yes. So he signs it and pops it back in his face and you think, oh, my God, this is what now? Yeah. But see, it was anything. Phones, watches, you name it. He, he, he signed it, it all. Yeah, that's what a legacy! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a legacy! Yes, there, there, there's uh, yeah, many ways of looking at that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, thank you so much for um, sharing some really fantastic memories of um, of Peter and also your time yep. in the the racing industry. Um, just as we sort of wrap up, is there any sort of one um, memory or one one sort of real takeaway you'd you'd like, us, like readers of this book yep. to sort of come away with about about Peter and his time at Bathurst?
1: I've often been asked which is the fav- my favorite. Race mm. and, and I have to say, they're all bloody hard work because <laughs> you go and you work <laughs> your butt off. Um, but in 87, when he'd separated from Holden and it, was a, it had been a, a shocking, very testing year. And for him to get to that race and against European opposition where the Sierras were obviously you a far better car, to drive against all odds where we couldn't get spare parts for the cars and so forth have to swap cars the conditions were wet um, we were behind the opposition he went out there and did an amazing job came in third um, but the um, European cars were found to be illegal it took a few months before that was ratified as it was the crowd went nuts for him to be the first uh, Australian home and given the circumstances for that year it was we just felt as though we'd you know beaten the earth, it was just fantastic, but then to be declared the actual winner, the crowd at the time were booing, and I, well, I don't like to see booing a thing, but they all they wanted was Peter. They yep. were not interested in the first and second wow. cars. Um, and so for him at that point in time to have come away with a victory against all odds um, it was important, and it was important for him to have people know that you don't give up when things go bad, you just give you it just keep your going. all yeah. and, and you try your hardest. And he did that, but he couldn't have done it on his own. We had an amazing group, a very dedicated, loyal uh, team behind us and, and sponsors. It was um, a challenge in every sense of the word and he always believed if you gave your sponsors more than they expected, you got better results. And so that, in every sense of the word, had to have been a highlight in what had been you know, a very illustrious career. Fantastic.
0: Bev, thanks so much for... Uh Spending some time with us today. Thank you. And um, there's so much more for uh, our readers to unpack in this book. There is. All all those personal
1: stories are just fantastic. Fantastic photos. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. Thank you very much indeed.
0: And you can buy Brock at Pathist and many other fabulous books at booktopia.com.au right now.
2: Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, Check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.